We open the scriptures this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, and we turn to chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we will read the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 8. This is the word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, See that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore, perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality, as it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward, of his own accord he went unto you, and we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and a declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. We read that far in the sacred scriptures this morning. The text of our sermon is verse 9. 
For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. People of God, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are among the most important texts in all of Scripture relating to our giving of alms, giving of collections. There are other important texts, like, for example, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, which give us warrant for including collections as part of our worship services, because those verses speak of coming together on the first day of the week and having collections. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are a more extensive treatment of this topic than you will find elsewhere in Scripture. And they look at it from a variety of aspects, standpoints. We read of the manner of the giving of alms. It needs to be done willingly and not by compulsion. Chapter 9, verse 7. We read also of where our minds ought to go as we contemplate giving to the collections. Our minds should go to the greatest gift, who is the unspeakable gift, Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 15. Closer to our text, we also read of the proper motive of giving. The Spirit, through Paul, commends the churches of Macedonia because although the members of those churches were extremely poor, they had given a great deal of money for the sake of the church in Jerusalem. That comes out in the opening verses of chapter 8 that we read. We read in verses 2 and 3, In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of the liberality. And then in verse four, four, verse 3, rather, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing. They gave even beyond their own power. Such was their generosity. But by contrast, it seems that the saints in Corinth were different. Corinth was itself a very wealthy city, and so it's likely that the members of the church there were probably quite wealthy themselves. And yet, the verses surrounding our text indicate that the saints in Corinth had only pledged to give money to help the saints in Jerusalem and had not actually followed through on the pledge that they had made. And now, Paul says, I urge you to do this. Follow through on your pledge. You ought to do this as you have promised. And here's the reason that he gives. The gospel. And that's our text. I have a striking memory in connection with this. I recall once as a young boy being in the classroom at school and my teacher asking my class to raise our hands if we thought that we were rich. We all sort of looked around at one another, and only a couple of hands went up initially. But as we continued looking at one another, something suddenly clicked in the minds of some of the students, and more and more hands began to go into the air until nearly every student was raising a hand. And our teacher told us that we were right. Every one of us was extremely rich. 
That ought to be our mentality, people of God. If I were to ask you today, children, how many of you are rich? Raise your hand if you think that you are. Then every one of us should raise a hand. Maybe we're not very rich in the sense of having lots of money. But every single one of us, as God's people, are very, very rich spiritually because we have salvation in Jesus. I call your attention to this text using as our theme, rich through Christ's poverty. First, we look at his poverty, then our riches, and finally, his grace. His initial standing, Christ's initial standing, was not to be in poverty. It was to be rich. Our text teaches that. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was. That was his initial standing. What does that mean? It means that Christ is divine. He is the eternally begotten one. He is and he was and he forever shall remain the fully divine Son of God. From all eternity, he is one with his Father. John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And that means that he shares in all of the attributes of the Father. Just as is the Father, so too the Son is immortal. He is holy. He is independent. He is righteous. He is all the rest. The very essence of the Son is the same as the essence of the Father. From all eternity, they are gloriously, perfectly, harmoniously, wonderfully one. And the Son is fully divine. Our text underscores that reality, the divinity of Christ. And it does so in two different ways. On the one hand, by its use of the word rich. And we might see this as something of a play on words because Paul has been describing giving money to help those who are in need. And now he calls Christ rich. And yet, there's more going on here. There's, very, there's a very fitting reason that Paul would use the particular word that he uses here. Because in the original language, the word that's translated rich is related to various words that have to do with filling something. And that's helpful imagery here. The Son of God was filled up. He was full to the brim, as it were, just like the Father is. He lacked no good thing. There was nothing that could have been added to the Son in order to improve him or to improve his state of existence. From all eternity, his existence is perfect and complete. But there's a second thing that comes out in the text to show the divinity of Christ. It uses three significant names or titles for him. And they all underscore his deity. He is Lord Jesus Christ, the verse says. He is the Lord, the sovereign ruler of all that is. No creature could expect service from him. No creature could make demands of him. In fact, he is, the text says, our Lord, the one who lords over us in the proper sense of that expression. He rules us with full and perfect authority. 
and with perfect wisdom. How rich, how full he was and he is. Secondly, there's the name Jesus. And you remember that Jesus is his proper name and that it means Jehovah salvation. This Son of God is God. He is Jehovah. How rich, how full he was, and he is. And then he is Christ. Christ, of course, is a title that means anointed one. And he was anointed from all eternity by the Spirit to serve in that threefold office of prophet, priest, king. And now, focus especially on that last one, king. This Son of God, from all eternity, is anointed with the Spirit to be the King of all creation. How rich, how full He was and He is. He became poor. Text says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And once again, this is a very fitting word. Because the original word here has the idea of being a beggar, of going about begging for just basic necessities, just enough to survive from day to day. Now, obviously, God would never have allowed Jesus Christ to die of starvation because he had a different plan for how Jesus was going to die and for what purpose he would die. But you understand the imagery of this word, the picture that it paints. This is extreme poverty. And that brings us to a theological idea. The state of of humiliation. We speak of Christ having two different states. He had the state of exaltation and he had the state of humiliation. The state of exaltation refers to the state in which he is glorified. It has four different steps. It begins with his resurrection from the dead and then it includes also his ascension into heavenly glory, his present day, right now, ruling over all things, governing all from the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then it concludes with his coming again on the clouds of glory to usher in the new heavens and earth and to judge all men. And so the state of exaltation continues on even to the present day and it continues even into the future. That's not the state that our text is focused on. This text is about the state of humiliation. The state of humiliation is the state of guilt that Christ took on in order to save us. The state of guilt Christ took on in order to save us. This state also has various steps, five of them, in fact. It begins with Christ's incarnation, when he came down into this world, when he took on human flesh as a human baby. That's the first step in the state of humiliation. And then it continues on to the second step, which is his lifelong suffering. All throughout his life, he suffered. 
The third step is his death. The fourth step is his burial. And the fifth, his descent to hell. The text refers to that state of humiliation when it uses the words, he became poor. In the state of humiliation, we just said, it was the state of guilt that Christ took on in order to save us. He took guilt upon himself. He didn't have any guilt of his own. But he, as it were, reached out and laid hold on our guilt and willingly put it upon himself. And he also took on a body, a human body, like unto our own bodies. It was, as we say in theology, a sin-weakened body. That doesn't mean that he had sins, but it means that his body was weakened It was affected by all of the effects of sin, just like our bodies are. And so, just like us, he could hunger, and he could thirst, and he could get sick, and he could be tempted. The fact that he became poor points to the fact that this was a willing poverty. He chose to take this on himself. No one compelled him to do this against his will. He did this of his own accord. It's the same idea that's taught in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Well-known words. We read there this, Who, and it's referring to Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. The idea of thinking it not robbery is that Christ did not consider the equality that he had with God as something to be grasped, held onto permanently and never relinquished. Instead, he willingly did relinquish some of his glory in order to take on human flesh and to save us. He willingly caused some of his power and authority to be veiled or hidden when he came into this world. Now, negatively, that does not mean that he ceased to be divine. There are people who teach that. It's called the kenosis theory. And if you ever read that term or hear that term, especially in a positive light, be on guard. The kenosis theory says, supposedly on the basis of our text in Philippians 2, especially Philippians 2, that Christ, in taking on human flesh, emptied himself of some or even all of his divinity. But when we say that the fact that Christ was rich means he was divine, and that he then became poor. That is emphatically not what we mean. That's not even possible. For someone to be divine, that being necessarily must always be divine, by definition. Rather, the point is that he gave up some of the benefits of divinity, some of his glory, in order to save us. It was in that sense that he made himself to be poor. We can understand this a bit better if we illustrate it by looking at each of those five steps in the state of humiliation, looking directly at each of those five times in Christ's time on earth. He was, in the first place, born poor. He had a lowly, lowly birth. That's where the state of humiliation begins. And for that reason, our translation is right to say that he became poor because Prior to that moment, 
He was not. He was rich in heavenly glory. He became poor when he came down and took on human flesh. And so we often think of this passage in connection with Christmas. And it is indeed a very fitting text to consider on a Christmas morning. Jesus was born into extreme poverty and humiliation. He was born to very poor parents. And they were so poor that they had to lay him in the manger. There was no room for them in the inn. But more than that, the incarnation was him taking on human flesh and in that way veiling some of his glory for a time. How humiliating for the Son of God. Secondly, he suffered all his life long. He told us, Matthew 8, verse 20, that although foxes have holes in which to live and although birds have nests in which to live, he, the Son of Man, had no place to lay his head. He was so poor that he didn't have anywhere to live. But in addition to that, he was constantly opposed by everyone who met him. He dwelt among sinners. Even his own disciples constantly misunderstood him. And we could say more. His whole life was suffering. How humiliating for the divine Christ to endure all of that. Third, he died. The poverty of Jesus was not just material, physical poverty. Poverty that deals with money and possessions. He was also poor in this way, that he took on a human body and then experienced death in that body. He actually died. How humiliating for the Son of God. Fourth, he was buried. It's true that he was buried with the rich in fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. But that's only the case because a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, took his body and laid it in the tomb that belonged to him. But even if it had been the case that Jesus owned his own tomb, if he had enough money to own a tomb, the very fact that he was entombed like mortal sinful men are entombed and that he then laid there for three days shows his deep poverty, his humiliation. How humiliating for the only begotten Son of God. And then fifth, he descended to hell. He endured hell in the place of his people. Although rich, he made himself exceedingly poor in God's eyes, even to the point of being despised by his Father. How humiliating for our Lord Jesus Christ. people of God, marvel at the mystery of it all. The Son of God, fully divine, eternal, omnipotent, great, powerful, glorious, rich. He became poor, made himself poor. What human mind could conceive of this? Who could ever come up with this on their own if God did not tell us in his word? What human mind can fully grasp the wonder? All glory to our God. On account of that poverty, we have great riches. 
But that presupposes that there's poverty in us. While the initial standing of Jesus was to be rich, the initial standing for us is to be poor. That's our natural spiritual state, to be totally impoverished. And here, we're not talking at all about physical, material riches. That did, of course, enter in a little bit when we were talking about Christ's poverty. Because, again, he was born poor. And he lived an entire life with few possessions. He had very little material wealth. But when we're talking about ourselves, we're not talking about material things. We are talking exclusively about spiritual poverty. Our natural state is of being conceived and born in sin, and thus being spiritually destitute, poorer than poor. God, it's true, created man good. He created him with great spiritual riches. Man had the image of God, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And man had true fellowship with his father. But when man fell into sin, he lost all of that and became totally poor, spiritually penniless, as it were. No longer are we full, but we are emptied out. Man became, in the fall, worse than a beggar. Because a beggar at least knows that he needs food. And he knows to ask for food. And he actually does it. We, by nature, don't even understand or have an inkling of our spiritual need. We are totally dead in sin. And of ourselves, there's no escape. When it comes to physical, material poverty, you can find all sorts of helps out there in books and in podcasts and in all forms of media. Helps about how to dig yourself out of debt, how to budget more effectively, and all the rest. But when it comes to our spiritual condition, the reality is not that we have a large amount of debt, but if we're just very disciplined with ourselves, if we work really hard at it, we can dig ourselves out of that debt. No. Our natural spiritual state is such that we could never escape. It's so great a debt that we could never get out of our poverty. We cannot save ourselves by our own efforts. That's who we are by nature. But thanks be to God, we are now made rich. The text says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that, in order that, Through his poverty, ye might be rich. Again, the point here is not physical or material riches. God never promises us those. It might be the case that you are quite poor right now, struggling just to make ends meet financially, even with the assistance of the church or family members, perhaps. Paul is not teaching a health and wealth gospel in this passage. He's not talking about being physically rich having lots of money and goods. The point, of course, is instead that we become spiritually rich. Our riches 
are all the blessings of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The imagery that we considered before is once again helpful for understanding this. We have been filled up, full to the brim, as it were, where before there was only emptiness, poverty, nothing at all in which to boast. There are now spiritual riches beyond all comparison. We once again have the image of God, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We once again have true fellowship with our Father. And we will, in heavenly glory, have that fellowship in perfection, in full. We are then brimming over, overflowing with the riches of God, which are not just money and other physical possessions, but they are true and spiritual riches. And so, you truly are rich, child of God, even if it happens to be the case for you today that in the Lord's providence, you are struggling financially. Rejoice that you are rich. If I were to ask right now, by a show of hands, how many are rich? Every one of us should raise a hand, people of God. And that's not just true because of physical, material riches, although it's probably the case that every one of us here is far richer, materially speaking, than the majority of people in the world. But spiritually, we are all far richer than we could ever even express. Let that be where you find your security then. We often speak of being financially secure, of having enough money stocked up for the future in case of some major unexpected expense, or maybe having enough money to retire. But don't find your security in the size of your bank account, in your retirement fund, in the amount of possessions that you have, or in anything else earthly. Remember the words of Jesus, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. The possibility of this now, of our having riches, spiritual riches, it's by means of his poverty. That's the heart of this text. It's what it means when it says, For your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Rich through his poverty, by means of his poverty. But how could that be? We might wonder. How could it possibly be that the simple fact that Christ became poor suddenly make us rich, who were ourselves poor? Well, here's the connection. As those who were spiritually poor, with absolutely nothing that we could bring before God in order to please him, and indeed, having a mountain of debt. We deserved to be judged by God with eternal hellfire. That's what we deserved. 
But in making himself poor, what did we say? The state of humiliation is the state of guilt that Christ took on. He willingly took our guilt upon himself in order that he might pay for it. And in order that we might be set free from it. And then bestows upon us all of the blessings of salvation that are in him. And so, his whole state of humiliation relates to this. Although rich of himself, he became poor and came down in the utter humiliation of the incarnation. Although rich of himself, he became poor and he became, he suffered for 30 plus years, all of which years were filled with humiliation. Although rich of himself, he became poor and died an accursed death on the tree of the cross in our place. Although rich of himself, he became poor and was buried in another man's tomb in yet another humiliating event. And although rich of himself, he became poor and took hell in our place, suffering the humiliation of being rejected by his Father and atoning for sins in order that we might be saved. And people of God, there was no alternative. It had to be this way. The state of humiliation, we said, is the state of guilt that Christ took on in order to save us. There could be no salvation apart from his doing this. We could never have paid off our own debt, and by nature, we wouldn't even want to. We are happy to sit, to wallow in our own sins, in our own spiritual filth and debt. We needed him to do exactly what he did, to become so desperately poor for us. It was necessary that he be born, taking on human flesh in order to save us humans. It was necessary that he suffer all his life, patiently submitting to God's will on our behalf. It was necessary that he die on the cross, that he might bear our curse. It was necessary that he be buried in order that he might then rise again and conquer the grave. And it was necessary that he endure hell so that we might be released from that judgment. Had he not done these things, we could never have been made rich. But he willingly endured every one of them. That's the gospel. And as I'm sure you can already see, it leads us to extol his grace. Pure Grace. Grace in this text refers to undeserved favor. And it's fitting that the text begins that way. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the idea of having God's blessing. Him dealing with us favorably without any merit on our own part. This is the wonder of our salvation. Although we were desperately poor, so poor by nature as to be entirely without anything that would make us desirable before God. 
and having, in fact, only a mountain of debt. Although that's who we are by nature, he willingly made himself poor in order to take away that debt and to bestow on us the highest riches there have ever been. Our text underscores the graciousness of this. It says at the beginning of the text, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, and the sense of it is, His grace is displayed in this way. He became poor. That's how we see His grace. And He did it, the verse says, for your sakes. Not for His own sake, but for yours, people of God. As one commentator said, he didn't become poor for all men. He became poor only for some. And he did it, strikingly, for your sakes. Even though, people of God, it was to his own detriment. It's been said that you can consider grace in this way, as an acronym. That stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ gave it all. He gave everything to the point of going to the cross and enduring hellfire on the cross for us. He gave all so that we might have the riches of God. What love! What grace. And even the figures who are involved here underscore the graciousness of this. Because on the one hand, we have our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the text describes him. And as we already saw, that means that he is the sovereign ruler of all that is. He is Jehovah's salvation. He is anointed king of all creation. Such an one would necessarily be rich beyond all comparison. That one became poor, willingly made himself poor, took on the state of humiliation in order that we might be saved. And then the other hand is us. And who are we? Who are we to have been made rich by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? The text, in fact, even underscores that, that question of who are we? Because literally, it says that you, by means of his poverty, you might be rich. Even you. You, Corinthian Gentiles, who were known for all manner of horrible sinful behavior. Even you. And even you. This is true of us too. We today are no better than the citizens of Corinth. For even you, child of God, he became poor that even you might be made rich. No illustration could ever possibly do full justice to the graciousness of what Christ has done for us. But just to give us even the slightest fraction of an understanding of what he really did, picture a scenario with me for a moment. Imagine yourself driving down the road and seeing, standing on a street corner, a homeless person, a poor beggar, looking very disheveled, very dirty, clearly someone who has very few possessions. 
and he's holding up a piece of a cardboard box, and he's written on it, homeless, hungry, anything helps. You drive over to this man, you stop your car, get out and usher him into the vehicle, and then you drive him to your home, and you open up your home to him. You give him your house key, and you give him your credit card, and then you open up the pantry, and you open up your closet, and you say, what's mine is yours. And then you even go one step further, and you go back out to that street corner, and you start begging for money in order to have enough to support this man in addition to yourself and your family. That man didn't have anything to offer you. There was absolutely nothing that he could have done to make this worth your trouble. And I dare say that no mere human being has ever shown such grace as would be represented by someone doing that. How much more then is this not gracious on the part of Jesus Christ? Did you and I have anything that we could bring in our hands to offer him and make this worth his sacrifice? The divine Son of God, who was rich as God is rich, willingly took on himself poverty, took on himself our guilt in order to enrich poor, wretched sinners. That is amazing grace. And it motivates us to thanksgiving. The text and the context both bear that out. In verse 7, we read, As you abound in all of these things, faith, utterance, etc., see that ye abound in this grace also. And that's referring back to the previous verses, which discuss this giving of alms. Abound in that, says Paul. And the verses following our text indicate that, as we said already, the Corinthians had pledged to give money to the saints in Jerusalem who were in need, but they hadn't followed through on their pledge yet. And now Paul says, verses, six and, verses 7 and 8 rather, I urge you to do this, and in urging you to do it, I am testing proving the sincerity of your love. If you truly love God, if you truly love Jesus Christ, if you truly love the fellow saints, you will follow through on the pledge that you have made. And now, the opening words of our text, for ye know, point out the connection. Here's why you should give your alms. Christ became poor for you. You know it. And you believe it. And it ought to result in thankful giving. And the same is true for us today. Child of God, consider the wonder of your salvation. The rich Son of God became, willingly became poor so that you, a poor sinner, might be made rich. In light of that, how could we do anything but respond in thanksgiving? One application of that is certainly to our giving of collections in worship services. It ought not be something that we do thoughtlessly, just plunking a little bit of money in the collection bag because, well, that's just what we do at this point in the worship service. We've always done this. I don't even need to think about it. It's just what I do. 
muscle memory, as it were. It should not be that that is true of us. We ought to think and even to pray about our giving. Thinking and praying about how much to give to each offering. And thinking about and praying for, especially the office bearers in their distribution of the money that is collected, that they might have wisdom in that work. And especially that they might be able not just to bring money to people, but also to bring the mercies of Jesus Christ, to bring them to the Word as they do their work. And then we should think, for, about, uh, think about and pray for those who receive the money also, that they might use it in a stewardly manner to the glory of God's name. And we should be giving out of thankfulness, both for all of the material blessings that we've been given, and also and especially for the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And as we're able, we ought to give liberally. Think for a moment about how rich Christ was and how desperately poor he became. Think of how desperately poor you were and how unfathomably rich he has made you to be. Give of your offerings in that light. Let the gospel govern your giving. But we can also apply this to good works in general because 1 Timothy 6 verse 18 uses the same word that our text does when it calls on the rich in the church to be rich in good works. That's what Paul says. All manner of service to God then ought to characterize us. We should be rich toward God in every area serving him in all things. And all the while that you do these things, people of God, remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself poor for our sakes. We are desperately poor by nature, but exactly because he made himself poor, we are made to be amazingly rich. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what can we do in response to so great a gospel except offer up our thanks and praise? May this glorious gospel message of the fact that thine own rich divine Son willingly became poor for our sakes in order to enrich us live in our hearts, and may we live out of that gospel thankful lives. So 